Hello, and welcome to What's Your Story? Threads of Human Experience, the podcast that weaves meaningful memories, unexpected lessons, and unforgettable encounters. I'm your host, Jesse Bach, and in this episode, we're trying to find out why the river runs dry. It's easy to not have to think about water, especially since it literally falls from the sky. But for Ray Callan, it's something she can't seem to get off her mind. Ray is living in the scenic foothills of Alberta, away from the city lights and noise, and in her case, access to water. From making sure her rain barrels are empty before a big freeze to checking the alarm for her water tank, she's constantly trying to collect and conserve as much as she can. The story starts just past the gate to her property. So right now I'm just driving up to Ray Callan's farmhouse and the driveway is pretty long, pretty bumpy and covered in horse manure. There are some horses to my right and a Texas gate up by the house itself. So this is where the truck has to pull in the yard, and when the truck comes, we have to move all our vehicles because it needs the whole space to turn around in. Ray Callan and her husband have been living in Pratis for decades, but because of low groundwater reserves, they are having to ship in 5,000 gallons of water a month to keep themselves and their livestock cared for. At the moment, we have four wells that we've dug around the property, and none of the wells are producing. <laughs> so we are hauling water now, and we have been probably been hauling water now for about 15 years. And as it turns out, because we're on a ridge, we're in a dry spot. This area does not have a lot of water right here, but there's lots of water to the west of us. There's lots of water to the east of us and water to the south of us. But this spot right here doesn't have a lot of water. So we depend on, you know, water coming down from above us to soak in to create more groundwater. And uh, the well that we dug, I think, didn't find an aquifer, was more dependent on underground springs. And those underground springs are fed depending on how much snow and rain we get. You were saying that a lot of the snow melting into the groundwater is what helps you. Have you noticed a change in the snowfall over the years? Well, I'm noticing our dugout. When we first moved here, it was full. And now it's about a third full. It, it's just about dry. So I would say there would be two things going on there. Yes, there's less runoff. There's less moisture. But also the fact that we've put a road in and our neighbors <coughs> to the west of us have put a road in, which is the high ground behind us. And the runoff that usually comes down from behind us is being blocked by those two. They're not roads, they're driveways, basically, from the road. Ray has a farm utility vehicle parked outside her home. It looks like one of those green John Deere tractors gave birth to a smallish truck. Okay, do you want to, uh, we can drive this over there. It's noisy, but do you want to go over? Oh, you can the side there. 
It's a new toy I have. <laughs> Even though the driveway has been put in, we're going to have to go a bit off-road oh, to see the dugout. Well, it is my husband's The water that we haul in, we don't drink it because it sits in a cistern, right? It comes in a tank on the back of a truck and then they pump it into a cistern. So we pretty much, I know a lot of people are buying water now, even people in town, but. Did you feel it slide as we came over there? Well, you can see it right there to your right. Just right here. See that big dip in the ground there? Yeah. So 15 years ago, this was pretty full. When I say pretty full, I mean right up, right? You can see that there's just very little left in there. The dugout is about 10 to 15 feet deep. And as Ray walks around and points to where the water used to come up to in the past, I can't help but notice how the ice is barely covering the bottom of the pit now. Yeah. And I'll show you the two driveways that have been put in yeah. and uh, that I think, I believe, have stopped the um, runoff from getting down here. So her driveway is a gravel driveway. It's actually covered in snow and ice right now, but it's not paved and it still seems to be interrupting the flow of water to the watersheds on the property. Water in Pritis seems to be touch and go. Some residents are able to support themselves off their wells, but as the natural landscape is altered, its resources are being redirected away from the properties of residents. This leaves people to take the risk to drill deeper, not knowing if they'll find a good source of water. But even if they do, the quality of water itself isn't promising, as Pritis has had dangerous levels of E. coli in their water recently, leaving me to wonder if the water had always been like this. I packed up my car and traveled farther south to Eden Valley where Knowledge Keeper Travis Jimmy John from the Stony Nakota Peoples hosted me in their lodge to sit by the fire. Going back to our stories of Ketomni, the trickster. When the human beings were first created, because we didn't have fur, we'd freeze. Because we didn't know where to find water, we'd die of thirst. So Ketomni took pity on us and he gathered all the animals in a great council. Deer, buffalo, the elk, the antelope. And he asked them, hey, these, these human beings are pitiful. They're not going to survive without our help. We have to help them. So out of that great council, the buffalo was the first to step forward. 
He said, I'll take care of them. The, these people, they, they can use my hide for their clothing, for their teepees. You know? so the buffalo was a walking ecosystem. Where the buffalo went, the birds followed. And whatever preyed on the birds followed the birds. And whatever preyed on them followed and so on and so on to us. The reason being is the buffalo knew where to get water. Buffalo will never drink stagnant water. They'll mm. always drink fresh water. So they knew where all the springs were in the prairies and out in the foothills here. So by observing the buffalo and being close with them, this is how we knew how to survive. The buffalo taught us this. So mm. again, we're part of that circle. We're not above the buffalo. The buffalo's not above us. We're in that, we're in that circle together. So when the buffalo died off, we didn't we didn't know where to get our medicines. We didn't know where to get our water, you know. So we didn't know how to take care of that land as, as properly as we would have pre-contact. The origins of indigenous land stewardship paint a picture of interconnectedness, enabling balance between the water, land, animals, and people, linking all of them to each other's vitality. But nowadays, human development has interrupted that relationship. And something Ray had said to me was echoing in my mind. If you're going to sell a property or if you're going to build a property, you pretty much have to be self-sustaining with water. You have to find a water source. So all these new houses that you see out here, because that's all new out there, there's a lot of new housing developments. They are tapping into the aquifers that they find, right? And there's a golf course over here that has a, a water license to the upper part of Fish Creek. And I don't think the license is actually where they get the water from the creek, but from the gravel bed just off the creek. So any of that water they're taking out of the gravel bed or out of the shale doesn't get into the creek. So people who, that have lived here for a long time, they will tell you from growing up here, the creek has a lot less water in it than it used to. So that affects Fish Creek, which runs into to the bowl. But like that, that affects the whole ecosystem. Ray's story reminds me that even today, Alberta's land and water are incredibly interconnected. People are causing these problems. And people are suffering from them. But it's not just our problem. Everything living is caught up in it. During my long drive home, I found myself wondering, is there a way to keep the land intact and still be able to live off the water? I stopped by Mount Royal University to talk with Tanya Musau, an instructor from the biology department, about how we are currently affecting the land and what can be done to help. Many years ago when they were <clears throat> debating whether to remove, I think it was the Catskills forest or the Catskills mountain trees. And they found, they did analysis, cost analysis, that it was going to be cheaper for them to maintain their clean water supply by keeping the forest there instead of cutting it down, making money off the timber, and then buying a water treatment plant. So just keeping the natural biodiversity intact was going to be cheaper than putting in a water processing plant. And the outcome was the same, clean water. It's not just the lack of water that poses a risk to people and ecosystems, but the quality of water they are receiving. 
And in Alberta, one of our biggest problems is agricultural runoff. I study aquatic insects. The crawling water beetle that I studied here in Alberta cannot tolerate any agricultural runoff in the freshwater streams that they live in. So they're only found in very certain pristine streams that are quite rare now. For other insects though, if you get too much fertilizer runoff in a pond, you'll get it, you're going to get a buildup of algae and that algae is going to take away the oxygen. And a lot of these insects depend on the oxygen within the water, the dissolved oxygen, in order to breathe. Lower water levels in natural sources means a higher percentage of agricultural runoff in the water supply. E. coli is naturally found in the intestinal tracts of farm animals, and excess phosphorus and nitrogen from fertilizer can lead to algae blooms. Stories like Ray's highlight that we are not as isolated from our environment as we might think. There's the few who are educating themselves and who are aware, and then there are the others who are not. And they go along and go, well, you know, you, you, you have a property there, and yes, I know I do. We should be allowed to have a property, you know. And I agree, everybody should be allowed to do it, but it's gonna cost, right? What's the cost? What's the cost of the land? What's it gonna cost for you to, to build in a way that's uh, not going to interfere with the watershed, right? As land development increases, stories like Ray's are bound to become more and more common. And if we continue to expand without keeping people like Ray and her family in mind, we will face more problems with our resources in the future. So it's really hard, you know, because we want to live our lives. We, we have a right to live our lives. How do we do that in the least damaging way possible? We just do what we can. Ray, Travis, and Tanya showed me that we are a part of interconnected elements, events, and lives that stretch back as far as time goes. Part of our human experience is realizing we are not here alone, and how we interact with the world around us has consequences for more than just ourselves. that water gives life. Without that water, nothing on earth lives. That water needs, then the plants need it, the animals need it, we need it. You've been listening to What's Your Story? Threads of Human Experience. I'm Jesse Bach. Special thanks to Ray Callan, Travis Jimmy John, and Tanya Masso. This series was produced in Mokinstis also known as Calgary, the ancestral lands of the Nitsapi, Iahe Nakoda, Sutsina, and Métis people. This series is part of the Community Podcast Initiative based out of Mount Royal University, where we are grateful for the opportunity to create, learn, and grow. As our stories intersect, we see the value and importance in learning about people and places where our lives unravel and recognizing our responsibility to decolonize our media practice. What's Your Story, Threads of Human Experience is powered by Shaw. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you can pull more threads and discover more stories.